Remember when we were talking about Rocky and him punching the dead cows and Marcello thought he, were, he was actually fighting a real cow? Do you remember that? Yeah, yes. yeah. All right, I'm going to hit start broadcast. Anyone have any objections? No, let's go for it. And three. Mubix, you have a The broadcast is now starting. All attendees are in listen-only mode. We're just back! Just pain in the ass. That's it. That's all he's got to do. We're yep. back. Hey, everybody. Hello. It's great to see you. There's a lot of Matthews. But an oh, absurd amount of Matthews, Matthews this early. Usually the Matthews join later. But mm. It's a, in a wave, or? I mean, I'm not they, sure. They come in waves. Yeah, they come in waves. We're already kind of a little bit loopy for this webcast this week. <laughs> well, I mean, when 2,500 people sign up for anything, we're like, yeah. <laughs> this should go well. This better be good. Do you think we're going to hit 3,000? I don't know. No. 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 Mm. no. We're, we're not a BB King webcast. Oh, yeah. Oh, right. Cross 3,000? Uh, yeah. And I also, Tim Dean, who does that work at Black Hills, crossed 3,000. Yeah, he got like 5,000 I was talking to him the other day. He's like, well, I got to figure out how to do marketing for Red Siege. And I'm like, um, <laughs> maybe come and do another webcast with us? <laughs> that guy with his what's, curb what's, roasting. What's the, go-to, what's the go-to meeting limit on audience and communities? 3,001. Yep. Oh, oh, okay. It actually starts to puke at about 2,700. It starts to <laughs> become problematic. <laughs> and it's funny when you talk to them, you talk to them about it, and they're like, yeah, yeah, we can handle it. We can, it's not a problem. It's not a problem. Then when you actually get there, they're like, what the hell are you guys doing? Like, no one goes to die. Like, why? <laughs> so now, Jason, correct me if I'm wrong, but we actually split it. So, like, go to webinar, and then we basically move it over to YouTube streaming. Yeah, if, if we believe we're going to hit a point where we're going to max out, then we just automatically start streaming on YouTube. And then just like, please go there, please go there, please go there. Please go there. <laughs> much better for this. But um, YouTube has all the bandwidth. They do. Yeah, they do. They do. And they don't care. Like, if we pull down 5,000 people, we're not a blip. It's like, <laughs> yeah. oh, look, some fifth grader is playing Mario Kart. <laughs> Every Twitch streamer has got that many views at one time. It's yeah, yeah. I think I think I walked in on my son. He was playing Minecraft, and he had like five thousand people watching. <laughs> and he, he like turned around, he pulled out a mic, and just like dropped it on the floor behind him, and just went back to playing. I'm like, where the hell did he get a goddamn mic? Like, jeez. Uh, Habasa said, "Would you mind spending a few minutes on Solar Winds recap in the pre-panther?" Uh, <laughs> it was bad. Still bad. Solar Winds is a thing. And it happened. <laughs> so Trustwave, a researcher at Trustwave, research, uh, released a, a, a zero-day, not zero-day, I'm sorry, uh, an exploit for, for solar winds that if it's listening on 1801, which it does by default, you can send it a Windows message, like for message queuing, and yeah. it, oh, runs wow. it, it runs it in WMI without any authentication. That's beautiful. It's, you know what's sad, remember, Rob? A developer wrote that. Like, <laughs> sat down, they whiteboarded it, and they're like, so we're just going to receive random WMI messages and just execute it on the operating system, no authentication. It's like, so, intern Bill, can you make that happen? I think so, sir. <laughs> so. Fantastic. It's going to be the gift that keeps giving for a while, it seems like. This is the largest intelligence failure in our nation's history. 
Which uh, one? You're gonna have to be more specific. It's been, <laughs> like, are you it's telling been a rough twenty twenty one has to come to our government who builds some of the like most advanced cyber weaponry on earth and tell them that they're popped? Okay. Yeah, that's bad. I could see how you'd think that. That's bad. That's defendable, Jordan. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. When you put it like that, it I sounds bad. Where you're right, yeah. Jason? I see yeah. where you're coming from. Those new shirts, hotness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. They're doing but, real well. Jordan, that was like two months ago. Like, other stuff's happened. It's completely <laughs> left our national consciousness. Sure, yeah. it's yeah. inside us as security researchers and people who have fun with breaking things. It, the rest that was of us have twenty. Like, the Who's transition it? between administrations, you have been, you've, you've left entire federal agencies that cannot be trusted. Their networks are... Oh, my God, you're... You're new to security and federal agencies. You couldn't trust them before. (laughs) I've done a lot with various governmental agencies, and it's been a train wreck for 20 years, like real bad train wreck. uh, Like when they got computers? Yeah, when they first got computers. So for reference, Department of Interior, they first got computers, and they made all of their IP addresses publicly routable, and they just left them that way for years. In fact, it was so bad, and I think it was 2022, or sorry, 20, 2002, we discovered, like, while we were there, that the entire government entity for the state of Colorado was routing all of their traffic through Department of Interior IP address space. And, like, we're just using up all of our bandwidth. Because literally someone in Colorado was like, hey, what's this port do? Click. Hey, the Internet works. That's it. Free Internet for us. And uh, I, I don't think that things have gotten better since then, from what I've been reading. It just sounds like that's about the way things go. But you would like things to be better, right, Jordan? Like, I think that's where you're headed. You would. Like, I, I would want things to Don't we all? Otherwise, what are we doing? He's not mad. He's just disappointed, you know? It is disappointing, <laughs> Ralph. <laughs> yeah. I, I think in a large part, like, from the federal government perspective, there's there's a huge there's a huge reaction to try to deflect deflect blame, right? So if you ever work with any government agencies, the most important thing in most government agencies is who can I blame when things go wrong? Uh, There's actually this flow chart. It's like, is it your fault? And it's like, is it broken? Yes, no. Yes, it's broken. Did you touch it last? Yes, no. That's like a flow chart. If somebody works in the government, you give them that to basically, can you blame someone else? And that's literally what everyone is concerned about is that deflection of blame. And that that did you touch it last thing is a huge part of it because I've seen people enter into the federal government in like CISO roles and they're like, we're going to get in here. We're going to fix absolutely everything. We're going to get this secure. We're going to do it. Get secure. Stay secure. And like seven months later, something goes wrong. They get blamed and then they're out of a job. And they're basically like, yeah, don't touch anything here or else you're going to get blamed for it. And I think until that culture changed, it's not like an insecure culture per se. It's just basically everyone's just kind of running away from any semblance of any blame anywhere. So it makes it very hard for someone to stand up and say that they're going to make things better. And that was a much longer answer than I should have given to that question. So I apologize. <laughs> Ralph, that's a very different room than where you normally are in. It's a new camera. It's a different angle. angle. It's a different angle. I wanted to switch it up. I want to switch it up. We can see it. There's a gigantic server rack on his right still. I don't see it. I just see the mic, and that's it. Well, ruined it for you, huh? Did, did. The illusion is gone. Yeah, I didn't want everyone to see all the Bitcoin mining I have going on. That's the problem. (laughs) How's that going? Keeping you warm? How do you see Bitcoin mining? What's up? 
How do you see Bitcoin mining? Lights, 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 clicky. Yeah, it's mainly heat. That's that's really the heat. Yeah, you see so much as feel. It's red. Did you see that as much power as Argentina? Argentina, yeah, the entire country. The whole. I don't see a problem with that. It seems sustainable. Yeah, it totally is. Actually, Ethereum, they're moving to proof of work. They're dumping it. So. Really? Be, yeah, yeah. They're dumping uh, proof, or um, uh, what do you call it? They're, or excuse me, they're moving away from uh, proof of work, and they're moving to proof of stake. Excuse me. So proof okay. of work is all the Bitcoin mining, and you know yeah. you're doing your solving hashes. Proof of stake is the opposite of that. So we won't have miners anymore. So. See. I want to create a, a, a cryptocurrency that's proof of work, but you got to do it by hand. Um, <laughs> so you, have to, you have to actually show your work, and it's like congratulations. Every math teacher, every math teacher on the planet just went, "Yay!" Yay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, children. That joke. We're going to be talking about this hashing algorithm. If you get an answer that has four zeros up front, you have to submit it. And you have to show your work. Perfect. Maybe. Maybe then we get kids into math. It's like, you know, congratulations, Billy. You solved it. I got $36,000. The kids be like all over that. So in middle school, the one, there was a group of kids that really paid attention when we talked about measurements, like grams and stuff. Uh For once, they were like, this is applicable to like my day job. So those kids (laughs) sold drugs. But other than that, it's fine. Oh, my God. Do you remember the... You had the like the weights with the three like weight measures, and you could adjust yeah. them over to yeah, like yeah. They busted those out in class, and the kids were like, "I know that." <laughs> You're like, "Oh my god!" It's oh. kind of like you know, I had friends in in high school that sucked at math and at science and at chemistry, and then they got they got hooked on meth, and apparently they're much better now. <laughs> um, yeah, at, at chemistry because I don't know they're just better overall. So this is going to be a weird segue, but my daughter's in engineering right now, and I was trying to tell oh. her that you've been doing engineering for years. It's called Minecraft. Like mm-hmm. all the things you're doing, like it's grid squares and Minecraft, and like how many blocks and this, and she's like. Uh, now it sounds boring and terrible. So if I make a Vorpal sword, can I go after the Ender Dragon or not? <laughs> is it the Ender Dragon? What the hell is the final dragon that you beat? I don't know, but 40 people are going to correct you right now. Yeah. Right now, no in Discord. Yeah. Yeah, said I don't even think there is a Vorpal sword to be. I don't know. So <laughs> I, I, I have a real hard time with Minecraft. It kind of makes me nauseous. I, I do, so... <laughs> I do. I get like a vertigo when it's over. Like after three hours of playing Minecraft, I'm like, all right, I need to, I need to go throw up. I did see on Facebook yesterday there was a video of, uh, it was just a, a video on Facebook of taking children, like teenagers these days, and giving them a computer from uh, Windows 95 system or a rotary and, phone. <laughs> yeah, they're like, well, how do you hook it up? Like, how do you turn it on? And then, like, so how do you connect to the Wi-Fi? Nice. <laughs> like, there is no Wi-Fi. You have to go through the modem. What's a modem? Oh, yeah. You got mail. <laughs> <laughs> I still love the rotary phone thing. Like, I actually have an old rotary phone at my house, and we do the thing all the time where kids are like, because I don't have cell coverage. Like, hey, can I call my parents? And I'm like, yeah, sure. You, like, gotta, you gotta make the phone call, though. 
what the hell is this? Like, that's the past. <laughs> it's come to haunt you today. So my daughter's boyfriend was like, so let me get this straight. On this side of this entryway, you have a rotary phone from the 40s. And on this side, you have a refrigerator with, like, a touchscreen display. I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> I still got that picture somewhere. I can't remember who all was. So I know that Egypt was there, but I came into my kitchen, one of the wildest hackenfests in the before four times, and there was like six BHIS pen testers trying to get like to a management interface on my uh, on my fridge to trying to hack it. And I had to stop them and explain to them that the entire fridge is controlled through that computer module. It's just not the display. They didn't stop. They just kept going. And like That'd be epic. That. my fridge stops working and they're like, that's cool. <laughs> That'd be funny though to replace the picture because I've seen the newer ones. They have like a, a camera to see what's inside the fridge because opening the yep. door is difficult. Okay. But it would be funny to replace that <laughs> full of things so that you continue to think that your refrigerator is full of stuff, right? This, and you just don't open it. I don't know. It could work. Maybe I that's where they're headed. I, I think that that's probably the most single tame thing that they were planning on doing with my fridge at some point. I would like to. I'm pretty the, sure uh, that they wanted it to do like say hot dog, no hot dog. Or something. <laughs> I think I think it'd be great. You remember remember dinosaurs, the TV show back in like the 90s where they had to like open the fridge a little bit and there was a bunch of creatures in there that were trying to like claw oh, their yeah. way out. Oh, oh yeah. yeah, that was a great show. Not the mama, yeah. not the mama, not the mama, not the. Yeah, so you could. Yeah. It'd be great if you had like a dinosaurs add-on for something like that, where inside you just seen like a bunch of like other smaller <laughs> dinosaurs trying to claw their way out and fight their way out. It's like a squirrel running around. Oh, this I is actually, not the actual webcast. I was just about to say there's about a hundred people here that have. This is their first time at a Black Hills webcast. Uh, it doesn't start for twelve more minutes. You didn't miss anything. This is how it is every time. Oh, we hack refrigerators and put dinosaur games in there. Maybe we got like a bunch of testers. Normally it's just one person presenting on one topic, but today we got a bunch of people presenting on this, one topic. This is huge. This is huge. Oh. This is, thanks, Ryan. Is that, is that Chris? Yeah, so Ryan has sound bites of all of us that he uses. <laughs> Oh, I'm working on this for I still have the soundboard. I got nervous and excited there for a second. Yeah, Chris is teaching right now, actually. If you're new to Black Hills Information Security, this is called pre-show banter. We do it every time before a webcast because we show up early because you, you show up early. You show up early because we show up early. It's a vicious cycle. So so if you're just joining us, we've been here since 4 a.m. Yeah, so I was going to do it. Let's do accommodate all the time zones. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And we're ready. All right, everybody. Hello. Welcome to today's Black Health Information Security webcast. It is the Sacred Cash Cow Tipping. We do this every year. It's an annual occurrence. John will tell you why here in a few minutes. But if this is your first time on a Black Hills Information Security webcast, thank you so much for being here. We are on Discord right now. We're in the Black Hills Discord. If you'd like to join us for commentary, posting gifts, things like that, or not, some people will say, wow, that's a lot of information and it's completely distracting. But, you know, whatever works for you. We have a lot of people here today. John will introduce them all. My name is Jason Blanchard. I go by Banter Crashland. And uh, if you ever see me, I do job hunting live streams. But, uh, you know, that's something different. But if you need a pen test or anything, you know where to find us. And, John, it's all yours. And I'm going to go off. Thanks. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for joining us, everybody. I'm joined by an illustrious cast of characters going through as I can see them. And we have Marcello on, Bite Leader, who 
I'm sure has angered at least one or two security vendors in his career so far. We'll be talking a little bit about that. We have Ralph. Ralph has got a couple of techniques and some cool projects that people may not know for endpoint security bypass. We have Jordan, who has literally been using the exact same technique for the past four years in the hopes that deep down it will stop working. And I'll talk about that because that's an important, important point of what we're discussing. And we have Rob, who is going to be talking about a couple of additional techniques and approaches. And, and I like Rob's section because it's less about here's a specific thing that works and it's more about the artistry and some of the things to try to kind of get your head in the right space for bypassing endpoint security. So I wanted to talk about why we're doing this, right? Because we've been doing this for a long, long time. And I think that there's some misunderstandings around why we do this. So first and foremost, we have people all the time that come out and say, well, you're just doing this as stunt hacking for marketing. Correct. You nailed it. Uh, that is absolutely part of what we're doing here. And I'm not going to sit here and pretend that that's not part of what we're doing. However, if you've been around BHIS for any extended period of time, you know that things are a little bit more complicated than just, hey, we're going to do marketing stunt. There's actually some lessons to be learned here. And one of the key lessons that we've been talking about for years and years and years in this industry is there's this tension that exists between reality and what vendors are telling you. Vendors are constantly telling you in this industry that their product will stop all attacks. They're going to shut down all hacks, zero false positive guarantee. And they are always trying to sell you on the hype of their particular product base. And to be completely honest with you, if we're looking at the endpoint security space, whenever we started with sacred cash cow tipping, way, way, way back in the day, it, it was all static signature-based detection, and it was beyond trivial to bypass most products. We've seen a tremendous improvement over the past few years in the endpoint security market space. So things have gotten better. But why exactly do vendors get better? Vendors only get better when their asses get kicked, publicly, preferably. This is a trend that's been happening in the industry for quite some time where you would have vendors that would say that their product is completely unbypassable and they, you know, talk it up. And then a security researcher would come up with a bypass technique and then there would be an effort to try to silence or threaten to sue that specific security researcher. And that's the way things were for a very, very long time. And when we get into that specific space, all innovation in the industry and also progression in the defensive products that people use starts to stagnate, right? So this is a way to try to push that forward and start keeping vendors honest. And by the way, you all that are watching can help keep your vendors honest. You should never be afraid ever of going and talking to your friends, your family, your coworkers about the shortcomings of your product. If there's a bypass technique, you should share that with the vendor, of course, but you also shouldn't be afraid to share that with the community at large because you are actually protected by law. You can talk about your experiences with products, even if it's in the contract that says that you can't. That clause is actually invalidated by the electronic, what is it, the, uh, sorry, Consumer Fairness Protection Act invalidated those clauses. You can't sign away your freedom of speech about a product. You just can't, okay? So that's one thing. We're trying to make the vendors better. And there are vendors out there who are fantastic to work with who weren't before, but now are really good to work with because they realized it's much better to be working with the offensive community than trying to constantly silence us all the time. The other reason why this is so critical is whenever you're talking to your management, it is very, very common for management to see those marketing messages and start to believe the hype. 
it, I, I talk about it all the time. We talk about security products. And they're like, well, I was walking through the airport and I saw this vendor's banner across the walkways at DIA. And I'm pretty sure that their product is pretty good because that banner was huge. <laughs> yeah. We need things like this to let people know that any component of your security support structure can be bypassed. Your firewall can be bypassed. Your endpoint security can be bypassed. Your user entity behavioral analytics can be bypassed. Anything can be broken and anything can be bypassed. But this is why it's important for us to make sure that we're keeping up to date and our architecture includes all of these things. Because any one of these things can be bypassed is an exceedingly difficult task to bypass all of them in a successful attack against your organization. So consider this to be education and really reinforcing the need for having multiple different points of view of security in your organization. And ultimately, this is about making our vendors better. And uh, the final quote I like to say, whenever it comes to security, if people are like, well, you're just helping the attackers, that argument is garbage. Because I can guarantee you the Russians, the Chinese, the Israelis, the NSA, all are familiar with bypass techniques. They're not sitting on this webcast. You don't have a bunch of Russians sitting around and saying, the me three, we have no way to bypass these products. Let's go to a BHIS webcast. No, that's not how it works. So with that, I want to leave it with one final quote. Remember, whenever we're talking about security, things are only fragile until they break. All right, Deb, can we move on to the next slide? We're going to talk about some tools and techniques that Ralph has assembled for us uh, to pull together. He also had a really cool cow that he found, which I thought was neat. <laughs> so, Ralph, do you want to set up a little bit about your background, and let's go through your techniques, and I'll kill my camera along with everybody else. So you, sir, have the stage. Yeah, thanks. So um, I really wasn't sure uh, what this was going to be, so I kind of pulled some techniques that have been working for me recently and uh, some of the different things out there that are kind of fresh, right? I know some people are going to talk about things that you know continue to work and all this other stuff. Right now, in kind of this space with EDR, we're dealing with more of kind of a loader problem and you know, getting your shellcode into memory. Usually, once you get into memory, you have a bit more leeway with these different products out there. And so a couple of the tools that I just kind of wanted to quickly talk about are getting your shellcode into memory. And some of the techniques that they're doing that, and these have somewhat worked for me recently. So next slide. The first one I want to talk about is uh, due diligence. And this is from guys over or at FireEye. And the, the big, again, with this is that this is a loader. Uh, the link there at the bottom, you guys can go look at the code and dive into it. You guys, if some people have probably already heard about this, they're like, yeah, I've already used this. Cool. And you might be saying, I already used this and it didn't work. I got caught. Well, you need to customize it. All right. Uh, it's easy to scan GitHub, pull out signatures and make it all work. Right. And pull a detection and then go, oh, that thing on GitHub doesn't work anymore. Cool. But primarily, this is Dell side loading. And the other thing that it can do is bypass application whitelisting by using some applications that are already on this that would be on the whitelist. And right now, again, it doesn't work out of box, but with a little bit of modification, you could probably get it to work. I've used this a couple engagements ago and I was able to get, it depends on the EDR product and where it's at, whether user land or kernel hooking and 
yeah, it uh, definitely something to check out. And this again is just to get that shell code into memory. So, so I've got a question for you. I think Martello yep. is on as well. So the actual offensive team at FireEye is very solid. Uh, they have some really good security researchers. But this kind of gets into a weird dichotomy in the industry because Marcello, was it FireEye that actually critiqued you at Black Hat a couple of years ago? I, I'm not. Sh- I, I'm not sure at Black Hat, but I'm not sure if it was FireEye. I think it was the Mandiant side of the house that okay. had some people who critiqued me specifically. Still, um, kind of the same corporate umbrella, right? I, I don't. Honestly, I don't know. Uh, I, but I. But definitely, I think they definitely are sort of the same company. But honestly, I don't know what the corporate structure is like. But it's definitely related to FireEye. So wanted to kind of bring this up because this gets into the dichotomy where you have groups like Mandiant FireEye that'll say, hey, you shouldn't release any offensive tools. And then their team is actually releasing offensive tools. <laughs> and, I, and I think, Ralph, you made a great point. And I love this because I personally like my offensive tooling where everyone can download it's it and create signatures <laughs> on GitHub. So if you're a security vendor and you're like, oh, we can't catch due d- diligence. It's on GitHub. There's no excuse for kind of missing these types of things. So go ahead. Sorry. Oh, it's all good. Yeah. So, I mean, this is definitely something that has been signatured. I get it. And that's where uh, when you do take some of these techniques, you're going to have to get into the code and modify it, put your own little twist to it, maybe make some changes, test it out. And a lot of times you can get these techniques to, to work for you. And again, like I said, it does depend on the product that you're going up against and, and uh, where they're at. So. Next one. All right. This next one is very fresh. It's from a buddy of mine over at Optive. It's called Scarecrow. This is something that he's been working on for a while, but it's out in the public now. And again, this is another technique to get that shell code into memory. And that this is like, once you usually pass that hurdle, a lot of doors open up, right? This is Dell unhooking this time, okay? So this is going to pretty much go around the hook that the EDR is trying to set in place in the function to inspect your code, right? It also does some API calls to load it into memory. These are custom API calls. Again, other things that aren't going to be in the repertoire of the EDR product, right? Another item that he put in here is fake digital signatures. So a lot of security products are just looking for the fact that it is signed, but they don't have a revocation list or or checking the hashes of these signatures to validate that it's actually the signature from the organization. So another quick way, it's kind of like these binary checks they're making to say, hey, this has been signed. It is better even though it's not a real legitimate signature, but you know, it says Microsoft on there or are they just reading the name off the signature or whatever it may be, right? So not validating it, right? So this currently does work out of box. It's pretty new. Again, it depends on the EDR vendor. So I'm sure someone's gonna go run it and go, oh, I got caught. Well, it's out in the public. So I'm gonna be surprised if it's not getting caught within the next three days if you know these ADR vendors are not doing their job. So get ready to make modifications. But the techniques inside of here are very solid. And how the idea of unhooking is definitely moving forward. And you're going to see more EDR evasion or, you know, techniques to bypass EDRs 
in that realm of unhooking, including post-exploitation unhooking. So we're talking about tools that are reading LSAS that are actually unhooking the EDR so that it does not see that you're actually reading LSAS. So, I mean, a lot of this stuff is moving forward. The EDR vendors are creating a world where we have to kind of do this, right? So, you know, adapt, change, overcome. And the other thing that I think that this one shows is if you actually look at how like a lot of advanced endpoint products or EDRs work, you know, if we're looking at anybody that utilizes artificial intelligence, you hear that all the time as a buzzword. Usually what that means is they're using a weighting system across multiple attributes of a particular executable. And once that weight has tripped over a certain number value, then they actually alert. So if you're, you're talking about DLL and hooking, you're basically blinding the EDR, which is something that we've been doing for years all the way back where you could actually migrate into the, cobalt, uh, the carbon blacks process years ago. Mm-hmm. And then it would go blind. That's been a consistent trick. There's also been some people where they use NetSH WLAN, or sorry, NetSH ADV firewall rules to block the firewall on the host for actually talking to the endpoint EDR. And yeah. then these, these last ones, like these API calls used to actually load the malware into memory, there are specific API calls that are very heavily watched by a lot of EDR products. And by sidestepping those, and we're going to be talking about that a little bit with some of Joff's slides here a little bit, sometimes just by doing different API calls, it bypasses. Digital signature, as Ralph said, uh, just saying that it's digitally signed, sometimes that actually works. But the point is, if you're actually trying to get past some of these advanced products, it requires you pushing and modifying multiple attributes of, of a, a, a piece of malware in order for it to work. So you just can't go through and use ghostwriting techniques by messing with registers before they're XORed and cleared. You would have to do something like that with a digital signature with different API calls. And as you're changing more attributes of that executable, it's basically that waiting algorithm for the artificial intelligence isn't seen and it's going lower and lower. So just a quick note and point. So go ahead. Yeah. And so I was also going to talk to you. uh, I didn't have a slide about this, but that is another technique that is super easy to do. And and this isn't a bypass, but going back to that firewall rule, I've done this a bunch of times. Almost all the EDR vendors are cloud-based, right? So you're not running an on-prem, you know, management console. It's all in the cloud. And so it's easy to get the list of all those IPs that you should be whitelisting. What you can do is use Windows Firewall. It's amazing, not super user-friendly, but it is amazing. And put all those IPs in there and drop them all, right? So blacklist all those IP addresses so that when you do run your code, they don't see anything. No alerts, no nothing. You ghost it. And that's another way to to kind of like say, oh, let me just test a bunch of things out instead of getting the alert automatically, you know, closing off the system, losing network, you know, just... It's just a great way to to blind them from what's going on. And a lot of those IPs are public, too. So Can I mention one one extra thing for you since you brought up the cloud interface, uh, Ralph? Yep, go ahead, man. The the amazing thing about uh, most EDRs is that they have that cloud interface, right? Well, if you get credentials to that cloud interface, almost every time they have a, like, live response mode. So, and they whitelist all of their live response tools. So you execute and you get creds to that interface, you execute whatever you want from live response. So a lot and a lot of uh, organizations don't even have or a lot of EDR systems don't even have like logs of who did the live response. 
or what it did. Like they just assumed that you know what you're doing. We have two factor maybe on the interface, and that you know. So, and Rob, that brings up a really interesting question to something that I was playing with that was working last week. I don't know if it's going to continue to work, but I was playing with Velociraptor EDR. And the cool thing about Velociraptor EDR is you have full access to the file system. You have full access to PowerShell. You have full access to cmd.exe. You have full access to the registry. And it's there as a security product to query the operating system to see if it's actually compromised. Well, I noticed like, like at the time, just some of the antivirus engines that I was playing with looked at that and they're like, no, 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 this is cool. This is actually a forensics tool, even though it, it looks and acts like a really full-featured backdoor as well. Yep, exactly. Like almost every security product also can be a C2 because that's what they are doing these days. All right, next slide. All right, so this one is uh, RDP. Sorry, I'm not sorry. So this is not a bypass technique, but it is something that I've used a lot. And, uh, you know, really, uh, once you've established some uh, access to the internal environment, using RDP to just move around is amazing, okay? It's Microsoft approved command and control. It's already on most systems. I get it. These workstations are going to be a different animal, but I'm mostly looking for servers. Very low detection rate. You can, it's easy to get, hard to detect, right? It hardly ever has two-factor, even though I have seen that on some deployments. Well, there, you know, you'll log in, you'll have valid credentials, and we'll present you with two-factor, something along those lines. And so that can definitely prevent you from moving or using that as your avenue. Moving files, copy, paste, it, you know, it's a great management platform because that's what it's for, right? And EDR is not going to detect that you're using RDP because that's normal, right? And... It's also just a great way to get on a box, see what's going on as that user. I get there's a lot of prerequisites for using RDP, and this is not you know something that's first going to happen, but it is a great way to be like, hey, well, I could just use this as a native tool and make access happen. So uh, and, I just wanted to bring that up. And I see this one used in conjunction, like you're talking about prerequisites. I see this used in conjunction in a lot of our tests where like testers will use Plink to establish like a reverse SSH session off of that system so they can basically forward to gain access to the RDP interface. And with Microsoft, you know, installing SSH more and more on systems, many times you'll have to actually use this in conjunction with something else to get access to the RDP port remotely. So mm -hmm. you're right. It, it, it's, you got to have a handful of other things to actually make it fly, but those things aren't hard, especially if SSH is installed on the system. Um, and Jordan's going to talk about Windows subsystem for Linux a little bit later. You can actually set up those port forwarding rules to make it pretty easy to get that full GUI desktop. Yeah, and I've been on a bunch of engagements where it just really moved to this. Like, I already had these credentials, and I already found out that I had, for example, uh, what do you call it, local administrative privileges on the system, so I could RDP. A lot of times it lines up more often than not before I got a you know, an actual shell or try to execute code uh, custom that will definitely cause an alert. So uh, I decided to bring it up. It always is like my go-to when I'm just trying to be as quiet as possible. So that was all I had. Thanks, everybody. All right. I think, I think Marcello's next, or was it, uh, I can't I remember. Next slide. 
It's funny. There's yeah, always no, a little bit of it. like, all right, here we go. This is this is this one. This one's this one's still recent. This one still hurts. Uh, yeah, it, it's a fresh wound. It's a fresh wound. Well, and, and I, I want to kind of preface this. Uh, we're going to be talking about Sentinel One, and I really, really like Sentinel One. I find them to be more responsive than a lot of the different vendors, and I kind of like their model where it isn't just seeing the malware per se, but it's seeing what are the follow-on activities to kind of build up a heuristic model of what this particular executable is doing. So, Marcello, do you want to kind of take this away and tell us a little bit about your what, what happened with Sentinel-1? Yeah, definitely. Um, well, this is, I mean, I guess I'll just preface this by saying that these two slides summarize around two weeks of pain or two months, I guess, depending on how you look at the timeline. But uh, essentially what was happening was that the default Python interpreter one-liner that you get from the web delivery module, Metasploit, so it's just you fire up Metasploit, you go to the web delivery module, and it, you, you select the payload, and it gives you a one-liner that you're supposed to just execute on the host. And it usually does something with scripting languages. So like on Mac, for example, it gives you a Python one-liner that you can just execute with Python, and it's injected in memory, and it just runs a, interpreter, a Python interpreter session. It gives you a interpreter session. So by default, on Mac, using just out-of-the-box Metasploit with the web delivery module, nothing like no staging coding, no, I didn't, I didn't mess with it at all. It just bypassed Sentinel-1 on Mac completely. And if you could go to the next slide. So basically what happened was that initially Sentinel-1, the engineering team thought that there were multiple bugs in the back end. And they had a few bugs that they were tracking on their back end that could possibly cause the, the, this, the EDR solution, the agent on Mac, uh, not to detect this. And they made us go through several versions of old, several versions of older agents just to, just to confirm that it wasn't, it, just to confirm that it may or may not have been the bug. And we went through that and it still just flew by it no alert, nothing. So what finally happened was the vendor actually put together a sprint team, quote unquote, across three, four different continents to get this fixed overnight, uh, which is, that's, that's awesome. I'm not sure if they would have done this with, if it were, weren't for the client involved, but yeah, I don't know. I, I can't say, I can't say to that. I can't speak to that. But basically put the sprint team together overnight to fix it. And they did. They actually, quote unquote, fixed it. Well, what they fixed was they basically just put a signature for the specific payload that I was using, which was the reverse HTTPS payload, Python interpreter. So they just put a signature in their back end in place. And finally, it actually detected it. Okay. But problem was that, again, like, it, it's just a signature. So all I really had to do to bypass it was just to switch payload to on any other payload, really, that wasn't a reverse HTTPS Python interpreter, and it bypassed it again. So, I, I get, like, and I just want to point out that just because something is expensive doesn't necessarily mean it works. Like, it, it works, period, let alone, like, to a level that you'd expect it to work at. And also, what's old is new again. At the end of the day, we're talking signatures here again, like, absolutely, 100%. Only now that only now the, all these vendors are touting that it has AI. Like that's that's the only difference. Where you know, going back to what Ralph and John were saying, where it's just different weight measurements in the back end. So it's just a bunch of if statements essentially. So I mean that that's that it's it's just a the situation. The situation is a little ridiculous, honestly, to the point where a lot of these vendors are just touting this AI capability. 
And that's, that's all for me. Cool. So next slide. And the other thing that I think is interesting, you talk about what's old is new. And, you know, I remember back in the days whenever you would run Metasploit 2.7 and everything would get caught. And then they came out with Metasploit 3 and then it would yeah. bypass and then they would catch everything in Metasploit 3. But if you reverted your payloads back to the old 2.7 version, everything worked again. Or what they would do is they would write signatures for reverse HTTP. And this is actually what they still do a lot, a lot of vendors. Reverse HTTP, reverse HTTPS, reverse TCP, maybe reverse DNS. They write signatures for those. And as soon as you start getting off that shiny, happy path of like the most heavily used signatures, then you can bypass again. And my concern on that is it appears with a lot of the vendors that they're literally detecting what pen testers use, kind of like in this situation. And once again, it's awesome that Sentinel-1 got a team and they've got people working on it because we've literally been threatened to be sued by some vendors. They're like, well, how dare you talk about this? We're going to talk to our attorneys. And I get all excited. I'm like, yay, attorneys, we're going to get sued. Free marketing. <laughs> you ever heard of the Midler effect? But it's nice whenever vendors are actually trying to get it better, which is really, really cool. So if you're a vendor out there and you're like, ah, oh, we're going to take it to Sentinel One, you're a hole. And I warn you, if you decide in your marketing propaganda to go after a vendor that we talk about here and we didn't talk about your product, it's not that your product is awesome. We have in the past, we have in the past had vendors say, I think it was Kaspersky, Jordan, one year, I'm not sure. One of their engineers from Kaspersky said, ah, they didn't bypass our product and they didn't talk about it. Therefore, our product is superior. And we literally went after their product in three blog posts. So don't look at this as a marketing opportunity that, that will end poorly for you. So take it as these are lessons that we all need to learn together. And detection of malware is hard. And Marcello, the other thing that you talk about is Python a lot of these systems, especially like Mac and Linux, have Python installed. Like that's just yeah. what's there. So trying to detect Python-based malware can be exceedingly difficult because Python is actually needed for a number of things. So Correct. Thank you I so think much. My, my, yeah, no worries. And oh, I, think I just no, no, I was just going to say like my my the only thing that I would people watching is just be warned. Like whenever you hear AI, they're just basically repackaging something that already existed and putting AI on it. That's the word AI on it most of the time, like most of the time. That that's that's my only it's, that's that is legitimately a pet peeve of mine that I will never get on. <laughs> it's literally it's literally a multi-point waiting system coupled in the, with some situations with heuristics is literally with their artificial yeah. intelligence. Exactly. So, exactly. But if you talk about Windows, don't doesn't Microsoft have like the closest to a legit artificial intelligence engine on the planet as they collect data from every single Windows 10 system on Earth? They have enough data. They uh, honestly yeah. probably yeah. I, don't, I wouldn't be able to tell you because obviously like but, every everyone uses a black box. But yeah. See, and that's why it's very difficult for any vendors, especially now to enter the space and say, you know, we're going to use artificial intelligence. Artificial intelligence is only as good as the data that you feed into the waiting algorithms, period. So if you are a smaller company, it's very easy to bypass those waiting algorithms and confuse them. Whereas Jordan just brought up, if you're Microsoft and you have billions of freaking endpoints that they're feeding data into, those waiting algorithms tend to be far more accurate. And that's just the nature of artificial intelligence. Sorry, air quotes, sorry. Artificial intelligence and the way it actually works. Because Marcello's right. It's a lot of if-then statements. And like I said, waiting as far as what they're actually seeing and how these things correlate with each other normally for process and network execution. And you can see some abnormalities with that. So, all right. Anything else, Marcello? I think that's it. 
Yeah, I don't, I don't think you want to challenge as a vendor anybody on on these calls because Marcello's going to sit and do some research and find a way around. So, like, to well, your point, John. But, but, I, but I think that goes back to the earlier point, Jordan, right? I mean, we've talked about this a lot. Any of these vendors can be bypassed. And once again, if you're a vendor and you think that your, if your product is completely impossible to bypass, you're delusional and you're going to hurt your company at some point. You are. You know, it's kind of like we go back to silence back in the day and your technique, I think in 2018 and 2020 or 2019, we were bypassing silence with Windows subsystem for Linux, which you'll talk about in a bit more data. Uh, but back then, silence was literally saying they could stop all attackers, the unbelievable tour, whatever they were calling it, or the unreal tour. And their entire tempo shifted. And with, with these things, and now they tend to be a little bit more tampered down with their marketing and their engineering team is a lot better to work with. So there are examples of where this can actually work. Uh, so yeah, setting up this one, Jordan, this is, this is ridiculous. I think this is probably the longest running bypass technique in sacred cash cow tipping history. So. But is it, 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 are we bypassing anything? Is, is EDR's job actually to look into the subsystem? Because it appears to me that it is not, right? It's blind to this space. It's just, it doesn't look there. And, uh, but, it, but isn't it like this huge, that, that, that's a massive blind spot. For those of you that are, that are listening or don't know what we're talking about, we're talking about Windows Subsystem for Linux. Specifically, Windows Subsystem for Linux 2 would be the better one because you have the full network stack. And it's basically running an entire Linux kernel, kind of in virtual space. But that Windows subsystem for Linux has full access to the entire hard drive of mm -hmm. its host operating system with yeah. little C bit of backslash. Yep, it's under mount, right? <laughs> so with this, you know, I don't know, go, Jordan, why do you think yeah, that this isn't necessarily their place? Go ahead. Give us the next slide and I'll talk through a, a little bit more about this. So this, th that previous slide looks familiar because we've done the same thing for four years running. And what do we do? We go to our MSF console. We spin up an, an ELF file with all defaults, no encoders, no shenanigans. We make it executable and we run it. And we have access to the C drive of this system remotely. It's, it's as simple as just, it, it's embarrassingly simple almost to establish C2. Last year I used Meterpreter, this year just Shell. So I don't even know what to say about it. It's painful and it's embarrassing. And the closest that I've seen a vendor come to detect this is Defender. Like you actually did talk about Windows Defender settings. If you're actually running, like for example, you talked about Kali Linux. The Kali Linux instructions for Windows Subsystem for Linux 2 actually go through and they specify that you have to disable uh, Defender protection for the files that make up the file system for Windows Subsystem for Linux. Because sure, if you want Kali large. Yep. Yeah. Huh? If you yep. want Kali large and the full install, yes, you've got to turn things yeah. down. But, but, but if you're not using Kali large, if you're not using Metasploit Meterpreter, I don't even think you have to disable it at all. Isn't that right? No, and Meterpreter, Meterpreter runs. We used Meterpreter shell this last year, but mm -hmm. Meterpreter still runs. So it's it's ignoring this space from a detection capacity. The only thing I ran into was leaving this system at defaults. When I tried to run this shell on 4444, as all great SANS instructors taught me to do, 
it triggered. Instead of I just died a little inside. Port? I just died a little inside. That hurt. That hurt a, little a lot. That's <laughs> too close to home. He almost hit two, 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 two for me. There's, but, yeah, there's I, a I Sigma rule too that says that used to say suspicious back connect ports. There's also another rule we triggered that I, John wanted to talk about for some reason. Suspicious calc usage. We'll talk about topic. that in a second. Okay, okay. We'll talk about that here in a second. So. But anyway, it, it, this harkens back to Jeff McJunkin's Wild West Hackenfest talk. His energy was so strong, and he kept using the words embarrassing because signatures have failed, right? All you have to do is make your interpreter payload 50 megs or larger to bypass most vendors because they only look at files of a certain size. There's so many things. There's so many ways to get bypassed. This it's one so to me seems like Windows should step in and, and look in this space it just yes, it doesn't make any sense. Do you think EDRs are supposed to be looking at virtual machines? I mean, it, I know this is kind of a hybrid, right? But it is. Yeah, I, uh, I, I think I, I disagree that they should be looking at virtual machines. But when you're looking at Windows Subsystem for Linux and you're looking at the fact that Microsoft is starting to couple it so tightly with the core of the operating system and they want to install and they are installing it in some versions of server. I would say that they should. But if you're looking at regular virtual machines, like you would run in VMware or Hyper-V, probably not. But if you're actually building this in as part of the operating system offering, I think that they, they have an obligation at that point. Jordan, what's your thought? Yeah, same. Uh, this, the subsystem for Linux is part of the operating system. It's, it, Defender is running on this OS. In, I don't know. Yeah. It, so I got, a, I got a blue team question for you. Do you think that WinLogBeat should be configured to see WSL installed and forward logs for WinLogBeat from the Windows subsystem so that you get logs inside of there as well? Interesting question. I don't, yeah, I don't know. I would like that. I would too. I think you could probably catch the installations, right? A process creation event where you're installing things, right? 4688 or Sysmon 1. There are ways to catch this stuff. Yep. But it it takes convincing Rosanovich that it's that it's important. And this mod for Linux is coming, man. I'm excited. Yeah. Yeah. So once we get there, once we get there, is this the year of Linux? Linux. This is the year of Linux on the desktop. This is it. I can feel it. This is it. One other point. One more slide, but it's cheesy too. So go for it. Yeah, just one other point for this. You don't have to install Kali, right? You can install no. any Oops, yeah, oh, yeah. Linux, Linux, whatever, and run a an ELF file, right? It's you're still gonna get it. Like, I, 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 when I was looking through these slides, I got a little confused for that. Like, do I have to have Linux there? But the cool thing about having or Kali there, but the cool thing about having Kali is you generate the shell code on the box that you're exploiting, which is just hilarious to me. <laughs> Well, I think that there was, I, I, it was one of the tests that Sally was doing that they actually did get this fired up on. Um, we couldn't get any traction on the system at all because they were using a lot of listing and they had it really, really locked down. But this is the one thing that they had. And it was literally once they got it fired up and running, it was basically just like having a full Kali instance. And they actually disabled Defender, which I thought was interesting. They disabled Defender because they had another endpoint vendor. And honestly, Jordan, the only one that I see looking at this at all is Defender. So if you're literally shutting this off and you're running anything else, I'm pretty sure you're completely blind. From what I've seen so far, that might change in time. Yeah. One more slide, Deb. 
this is another thing you check for as a tester on a box. If if an organization isn't managing Microsoft Store properly, you just install oh, no. Python and get out. It's a couple clicks, right? A Python C2 server is 50 lines of code for the client and server combined, right? And an interactive client, you just run it trusted. You don't even have to be admin to install this stuff. And that, that makes it so much fun to look at. We talked about this in pre-show as well, where they're starting to bake and enforce Microsoft Store being open. It's part of the applications that get installed on Windows 10. So it's just, again, all the Python binaries, everything you need. And, and I loved talking to Fletch about this because he always goes and looks for Ruby and Perl and Python that sometimes come baked in with these security tools we install. Yeah. That's it. So Well, and this also speaks to Marcello with what he was talking about earlier, right? Uh, I think that one of the problems with the Mac stuff is that tight coupling with Python. It isn't necessarily the malware per se, but it's utilizing Python. And as we get, I, I think Microsoft is planning on baking in Python in Windows in the future, aren't they? I thought I remember reading an article about that. It's going to be installed by default at some point. These are the gray areas that your attackers live in. And it makes detection that much more difficult. Sure does. So I think we have Rob next up. Go ahead. Uh, so Jordan, when are we going to have Send shell to Jordan as a Windows Store item. We had talked, John and I talked about this last year. Yes, we did. <laughs> we sure we just did. never got around to it. <laughs> there's port scanners and there's, you know, investigative tools. You know, these interpreters. There's, I don't know. It's, yeah. Anyway, cheers. All right, handing right. it over to Rob. So I didn't find as many cow pictures as everyone else. But I I did my best. So next, please. So the first, uh, this is just a list of things that I thought were EDRs. Go ahead, next. Sorry. All right. So first off, we're going to talk about initial access. So I, I tend to couple things with initial access and then post-exploitation and, and things I can do in each one of those. Next, please. So the first thing, and I know Marcello is going to come on because he had, I think he added the hipster line. But the the first thing is, a lot of EDRs aren't really up to date on the newer programming language. And with Golang and Rust, you can build all kinds of Windows executables and DLLs and all kinds of stuff out of them. So like you can still do a lot inside of Golang and it just doesn't see it. Like it'll it'll it might prompt you to run, but like I still can run. I mean, I think it was only a couple of weeks ago that I ran, I took a Golang.go file generated standard metasploit like reverse HTTPS payload without any encoding or whatever, threw it inside of Golang and just compiled it and ran it. So like it's still getting around quite a bit of stuff. Um, Rust is a little harder, but there, I think there's literally metasploit injection library or, or what are they called? Uh, cabs or caves or whatever. No, inside of Rust, they have their, I forget the name of it. It starts with a C, Car, uh, carts or something like that. Anyways, so th there's Great. libraries inside of Rust to add Metasploit into it. Like, it's super easy these days, and EDRs don't really see them. Also, a lot of malware is still written in Delphi for some reason. So if you, for some reason, remember how to program in Delphi or can find a, uh, a compiler in Delphi, you can still get around uh, EDR quite easy. And uh, Marcello, if you want to talk about NIM, I honestly don't know much about it. So 
if you can jump Nim, on and talk. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think, Rob, just going back to what you were saying, I think you were looking for crates. Is that what you meant? By the, yes, crates. The, uh, yeah, crates, yeah, yeah. Gotcha, okay. So, yeah, NIM is awesome, and I've been doing a lot of research on it lately. But essentially, it's, it's one of these uh, languages that tries to sort of abstract C out for you so you don't have to write C, but it actually does compile to C. So if you look up NIM, it's, it's like Python syntax, but it actually just compiles to C, so it doesn't go through like Python runtime or interpreter or anything like that. So one of the main you benefits... you compile from NIM to C, then you compile C to Windows executable? Correct. Yeah, yeah. And one of the great... And, and like NIM is in the same category as Rust, sort of. It's definitely not as mature as Rust, however. But like out of the box, like the uh, cross-compilation is beyond easy, sort of like Go. And you can interface with C via its foreign function interface. So that, that's uh, what, what you're looking for. And that's what you're looking for in the language when you try to create malware, when you're trying to create malware is how mature is its foreign function interface? Can it interface with C and all that sort of stuff and binary size? And one of the main benefits of them is exactly this, that the binary size is super small because it compiles to C. Cross-compilation is super easy and, and um, it can come and interact with as well. And I think that compilation is probably one of the key steps for these products, right? Whenever you're yes. running Go or you're running Rust or you're running NIM, whenever you use a standard compiler and you have tools that do reverse engineering or they decompile or even just simple reverse engineering, looking at procedure pre preambles inside of a compiled executable, they expect that to be in certain places and look a certain way. Whenever you run with Golang or you run with Rust or you run with NIM, it kind of screws that whole thing up when you use a different compiler. So any of the tools that are actually looking inside of an executable or looking for specific things in specific areas, they're not there. Like it wasn't compiled inside of Metasploit or it wasn't compiled as part of Visual Studio. It was some kind of weird janky compiler. And sometimes that's all that you need is just a different compiler. Yeah. And one other thing I wanted to mention here, and I didn't want to steal it from Joff if he was going to be here, but he's not. So I can steal it now, um, is that .NET actually, the .NET core, you can actually start compiling the, the runtime in with the binaries now. Like with uh, core 5.0 or whatever, there was actually a, a presentation uh, last year about it, which was really good. I'll get the link. But you can start compiling in your C-sharp code with the, with the runtime so that you don't even need to be executing in that space so that the EDRs can see it. Like they'll be looking for, you know, system management.dll runtime executing, and then they'll know how to handle those. But this will be actually in, in the binary itself that it's running. So I've had good luck with bypassing EDRs by building that. It is like Golang size, like, so you're going to talk, be talking about like five, 10 meg binaries, but, you know, it's, it's, it's you want to get around EDR, you're going to probably have to have a bigger binary. But Rust is great for getting small binaries. And, and like Marcello said, NIM is pretty small as well. Can I go to the next slide? And while I was looking for a logo for Rust, I just wanted to bring this up. This is the reference that people wanted to say, this is how Rust works. And I know that C++ is not very well-favored and Java is not really well-favored, so I don't understand why people want to reference this with Rust. And it's just a, from an attacker's point of view. Logo. Right? <laughs> this is not well, I like how Java, it's like safety, 
high level. Uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> so next slide. I just thought that was funny. But I did want to talk about something that I've been using literally for years. Like I have been using this on fishing engagements all the time because I love it so much. And not very many people know about it or use it. And what that is is a Diag cab, so diagnostic cab file. And what you do is you download the troubleshooting Microsoft troubleshooting pack designer, and it's kind of hard to find it nowadays, but you can still get it. Essentially, what this does is it creates a Diag cab file. It's not an executable. It's not a PowerShell script. It's just a dot Diag cab. And so when you run this Diag cab, it pops up this cool little prompt and says, "Hey, you have updates, or there's a troubleshoot that you need to do." It's signed by this person, like click next to, to fix it. And so you do have to do some, you know, social engineering to get this to run. You have to say, hey, we tried to push an update. It's not working. Could you run this? It'll fit. It's, a, it's an all-in-one tool. It's a Microsoft fix-it tool that will do this. And so it's, it's a little bit of a step. You have to have user interaction to do it. But the great thing is, because it's signed, you can do all kinds of things that EDR is just not going to look at, and, and it tends not to look at Diag cabs itself. And so inside of there, it's executing two PowerShell scripts, one to fix the, the problem and one to validate the problem. And what's great is not very many times in a, in a pen test do you get that, that functionality, right? You can say, did it run? Oh, it didn't run? Run it again. And so that's the amazing thing about Diag cabs is you, you can actually check to see if, like, do a net stat, see if there's a connection. It didn't? Okay, run it again. And it's so powerful. And I love Diag cabs. Um, not everybody blocks them on their, you know, do not allow file, file list, like their extension list. So it gets around email filters all the time. And again, because it's signed, it's not looked at so much, and it's it's really great. So the one bad thing about it, I'm sorry? I was going to say, this is one of those gray areas, right? Like, this is used legitimately by companies uh, oh, to yeah. actually push out fixes and update things. So it's really hard just to say, well, we're going to completely shut Lock this all down. Actually everything. Yeah. And Microsoft uses it all the time. It's, it, it's the fix-it tool that you download from, like, the internet or from Microsoft.com. Those are the things that you are downloading to fix your problem. And so it's wonderful. I like it. It does need a valid valid code signing cert. You can get those at different places, but once you have it, you're good. So next, please. DL dropping. Um, Okay, so this one. So DL hijacking has been a thing for a while. And there's all kinds of references out there to talk about DL hijacking. And so I'm not going to go into that, but I will go into one of my favorite hijacks of, of, of any technique I've ever used. But it does require a lot of patience. And that patience is the fact that lots of people run things directly out of their downloads folder. And so they'll open up documents, they'll open up all kinds of things. And one of the things about Windows is that it looks in the current directory first for some of the things that it's running. And if you're running an executable or a docx file or a lot of other like file extensions, that executable says the current working directory is 
SQL and download or user downloads, user profile downloads. And so if you drop a version.dll and version.dll is like the number one hijackable DLL that I've ever seen. If you drop a version.dll into the downloads directory, and I, I promise you, if you go look, there will be at least one out of uh, 1,400 people on this webcast that will see a version.dll in there, and you better be scared. Because that DLL is loaded by pretty much every Windows executable that you can think of, and it's super easy to hijack. There's very little uh, exports that you need to worry about, and it, it works really well. So, like, you're not going to get execution right off the bat, but you will a couple days later or, or an hour later or a week later. So you have to have that patience, but you just drop it in that, that, ex, uh, that directory and wait, and you'll get a shell eventually. So that's one of my, my favorite ones. But dropping version.dll in program data and, and you know app data, there's a bunch of places that you can do this in. It's not just downloads, but... This is one of my favorites. And because it's being loaded by a known process that, that someone has either either downloaded in specifically to do this or they downloaded a long time ago and it's a valid application or whatever, it works wonderfully and you know EDR doesn't say anything about it. Next slide. So now we're gonna get into the post-exploitation. That's stuff you can do via phishing. This is what you can do via, um, once you have a shell, what to do next. Next slide. Uh, programming languages installed. So C-sharp, obviously you can run stuff with C-sharp, but the things that, and we already talked about Ruby and Python, but the things that I don't think that many people know is that almost every person who has a Windows 10 machine these days has Node.exe somewhere on their system. And node.dxe is just node.js. And for some reason, all kinds of different, like here's an example, uh, Adobe Creative Cloud, Photoshop, they throw that in there. I know that Discord or someone, I think another chat program used to do it all the time too. Like you probably will find node.exe somewhere on that system. Uh, Ruby.exe or IRB.exe if you run Chef and Puppet. Those are always there. Like Java.exe. It's there. Like, I know we can't run applets anymore, but jars work beautifully locally. So if you have a shell, you can download a standard Java interpreter, drop it on disk, run java.exe-jar, and then the file, and you'll get a shell. Like, EDRs won't look inside of jars for some reason. Defender does. Defender will catch that. But, like, most of the other EDRs that I've dealt with don't see anything about Java app, Java local applets. So. Programming languages, it, like we've already talked about, is they're all over and they're getting more pervasive. Like Node.exe is just getting all over the place on systems these days with all of the, you know, like web-based GUI tools these days. Next slide. WSL, we've already talked about WSL, but I did want to add this one trick that I, I like in here is that there is this magic share when you install WSL that the WSL dollar sign that goes directly to all of the WSL uh, file folder extensions, what are the, the file system. And all you do is edit the cron tab via like notepad or whatever. 
And then the next time you have WSL running, you get the script running. And it can the cool thing about WSL scripts, like I I can't believe that I'm saying this, but like rc.local or crontab.hourly can run calc.exe and it works. And so like I you can run high five. Right? <laughs> so like you can you can on Windows edit the crontab file to run a Windows tool. Like it's just so integrated that you don't you need you don't need like to go crazy but like the that path that execution path will be super hard for an edr to notice right so you'll have you're editing this file inside of this share and then it somehow executes later an hour later from linux onto the system and so it's no longer a downloaded file or whatever so I like this this path because you're kind of confusing EDR logging. Next slide. And like Joff talked about this in 2019, but it still works. It's the copy and paste method. So you just copy, you drop your, you know, malicious DLL, you copy run DLL 32 out of system 32 and run it. Like, and some reason it still works really well. And EDRs have these signatures that look for run run DLL 32 executing and it just doesn't need, it doesn't look like that anymore. And there's a typo for the DLL, but anyways, next slide. And this is becoming my favorite. And so malicious text editors, I know we that SolarWinds actually had this same problem with the Visual Studio stuff, but Malicious text editors are, are, are becoming my favorite kind of persistence slash shell because they come with all of these programming languages built in. So like Sublime, uh, Sublime Dext has Python in it, and all you do is add into these Python files inside of the Sublime lib directory inside of app data, and it runs Python. So you just add your own Python, tell it not to be blocking, and you have code anytime they run Sublime. Like, literally anytime it starts up, you can be running. And people who have Sublime tend to run it quite a bit. Noplaid++ has the same issue with resources. Those are DLLs, so you can just drop a DLL with uh, Notepad++. Visual Code, or Visual VS Code has extensions. Those are all C-sharp for the most part. I think they have others. But it's super easy to just drop the prescribed text editor tool binary and have it execute your stuff later or just run it yourself. Like if you're looking to get a shell, all you have to do is edit the package for sublime text, then run sublime text. It's going to pop up on their desktop, but they have it installed. So they're not going to think anything of it. They might close it, but you're already running. So you're good. Next slide. And that's it for me. All right, I think we're going to do this next set together since Joff is not here. So next slide, let's jump right in to the next set. So Joff has been doing a lot of stuff with us uh, as far as endpoint bypass techniques. And uh, there we go. So this is, this is, this gets back into the signature-based detection nature of even a lot of the more advanced products out there. And Marcello talked about this as well, where you can take your malware, right? And you can just simply scrape certain like 
applet names or variable names, or you can randomize them. Or he has in here stuttering. So instead of invoke Kerberos, it'll go invoke Kerberos. And, and this works. And, and the thing that's interesting about this for me, Rob, is this isn't a new technique, right? This technique has been around for a long time. Like you would take VB and you would take PowerShell and you'd break it into two, you'd split it. So the first variable would be PowerShell and the next would be variable one plus L and then the rest of it, and that would work. You've got the advanced set attack from um, Eric Conrad, where he was taking Mimikatz and he would take the source code and he would do a find and replace from Mimikatz to Mimidogs and then compile it and it would bypass. And, and I think the ultimate concern for this is as much as we talk about artificial intelligence, it's still very heavily based on signature-based detection. And I wanted to kind of get everyone's opinions as far as why we think that is. Is it just an issue that true artificial intelligence is incredibly difficult? It has weaknesses, it has shortcomings that need to be addressed. Why is it this stuff is still working today? Like, why are we talking about something that he wrote in 2019 that is still effective? And that seems to be a theme in these sacred cash cow tipping webcasts where we're literally like, yeah, here's something that's not new. Here's yet another thing that's not new that's still working. And it almost wonders, makes me wonder if we've plateaued or stagnated. Well, I'll say, I'll say that first off, like signatures are good for catching low-hanging fruit, right? Mm. Like anyone who doesn't edit things, like it's going to catch that. And that's the vast majority of malware these days, right? Is low-hanging fruit. I'm going to, I'm going to throw things against the wall and see what sticks and I'm going to add to my botnet or whatever, right? That's been, that's been the way of things for a while. And so when you start thinking about like, how do I defend against something that is slightly modified, that takes a lot more work, right? So I can, throw a, I can throw a signature in very easily. I can hire 50 people off the street to write these signatures, and it's going to cost me very little amount of money, right? Like the people who can dig into these things is going to cost a lot of money. And to be honest, the security industry is not big enough yet to have yeah. enough people to do that. So I don't know. Like, so it's almost like the quote, there's quality versus quantity, but quantity has a quality all its own. So yeah, it's brute force to just write lots and lots and lots of signatures. But if those people are cheap to write signatures, then let's start writing signatures, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah I agree. And that's why I think sandboxing should be a lot more. I, honestly, I don't understand why a lot of these EDR solutions don't have some kind of sandboxing capability. Like you'd think like how much, considering how much they're charging, like you'd think that they would have like something that actually has some kind of sandboxing solution. Well, when do they do not? Uh, that's what, and, and sandboxing I think is, would be a lot more effective in terms of, well, coupled with signatures would, would make, would increase the effectiveness a lot more. It's always funny whenever you're pen testing a company that's using EDR and endpoint security vendor that uses sandboxing and you're like testing this company in Kentucky, and then you get a reverse shell connection from France, and you're like, what the literal hell just happened? It's that, it's that small moment of panic. It, it can uh, also go really bad when you have sandboxing in place. So we, I was doing a test a few years ago where this company had sandboxing in place for all of their emails. So any binary that came in or, or file of any sort, it would automatically execute in the, in the sandbox and then would wipe the sandbox and go away, and it would you know, determine bad or good. The problem is their sandbox was domain joined. And we noticed that because every time it'd call back, 
we'd get like five minutes worth of execution. And so we started scripting things and make it a little faster and make it a little faster. And so we get a little, little bit of detail out each time. So it can go really bad when you do sandboxing too. It's like you, you literally failed the concept of sandboxing by not, defining, <laughs> not learning the definition of the term, right? So, all right, next slide. Let's keep moving because I want to get through the rest of Joff's stuff since he's not here. Um, oh, I want I oh, to talk ahead. real quick about that last slide real quick. Two seconds. Yeah. Um, one of the things about it is that first bullet is removing comments. A lot of signatures actually look at the comments inside of scripts. Like, uh, I know that Bloodhound used to have a signature for the comment about Bloodhound running. Like, here's, here's the arguments that you need to run when, you know, that output when you don't specify any arguments. So PowerStrip, what it'll do is it'll remove all comments out of your code. And that is a really effective method, right? Like it's, it's for some reason, super powerful because they're signaturing things that are kind of unique to that system. I'm just waiting for the day where, you know, Joff Thire is a signature inside of like uh, tools. I will tell you, we had one endpoint vendor, because just like it reads here, it reads in PowerView.ps1, and then it exports as PowerView-stripped. Their signature was looking for dash-stripped.ps1. <laughs> there was another one, too, Netloader. He huh? was uh, actually loading using a, um, uh, what is it, the pipeline from Azure. And what what happened is he would send it through, find out what, Amzi uh, and Defender were flagging on and then rebuild it over and over again every night. And actually, it got to the point where Microsoft was like, hey, stop. Like, don't, don't do this anymore. Like, <laughs> <laughs> please, I, please, please stop. All right, so I'll next slide. Go ahead, Ralph. All right, so this is just it executing, and it still runs just fine. So next slide. I think the next slide is where we're talking about heap allocation and slide uh, sizes. Yeah, here we go. So this is Joff just building a full .NET assembly. So you can actually export the C-sharp the C -sharp output within Metasploit. And then the interesting thing on this is how he's actually loading it into memory. So you take your C-sharp, you would actually put your shell code inside. And there is some code missing. I think Rob and I both were looking at this. And we're like, there's some stuff missing here. And then basically allocating the heap size and then loading your shellcode in. And how you load that shellcode in is important. So you have in this particular one, what, what did we decide? It was in a get delegate for function pointer was the interesting function on this, if, unless I'm mistaken, um, Marcello. Yeah, so he, allocate, he allocates the memory with heap allocate. Then he copies his shellcode over into the heap with marshall.copy. And then marshall.get um, delegate for function pointer points at the function and says, this is a function I can execute inside of the heap. And then at the F, you know, bracket or uh, parentheses, it executes the, that, that function inside of the heap. Okay. So now this one did get caught. Uh, I don't know if anybody on Discord knows why this particular one got caught the first time it was ran. But this particular one was caught specifically because it invoked calc.exe. That was it. We actually had some people that we were working wolf. with. It, yeah, just basically, you know, as soon as you run anything that needs math, people are like, that's, 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 that's hacker work. 
And as soon as the command was switched away from calc.exe, then it started executing. And Jordan, you said that there were actually some Sigma rules that were published that it basically would fire almost any time someone would run calculator on a Windows system. Yeah, back in Discord now. It's it. I think it's been removed from the primary Sigma repo, but it still exists residually in the downstream repos. So a lot of people pull Sigma, fork it for their own use, and so there are still some suspicious calc exe rules that trigger. Yeah. So you want to do math? Sorry. <laughs> yeah, that's going to be an alert. Isn't that why Windows removed calc or calc from its system now? Like Windows ten doesn't have calc by default anymore. Like yeah, but it still starts. You run calc.exe, right. it fires. So they're and basically it fires up the Windows for- Store. It fires up yeah. the Windows Store that says, "Would you like to install calc?" Yeah, because clearly we don't need that in our <laughs> operating system. So we thought that that was kind of funny. And there was also some XOR shenanigans that aren't in this particular slide that were added in as well for obfuscation. So next slide. I think that we have one more, or are we done here? So there we go. So that's him actually going through and executing it and this, making This it. is awesome. No, so this is a different way. So oh, this is this is a different way? Oh, okay. Yeah. So this is running pretty much, you can actually load any DLL this way inside a PowerShell. So you get around needing to run it in in like run DLL or something. So this is PowerShell just loading that assembly and, and reflectively loading it into memory. Oh, okay. And is this from the same gig that you guys were working on last uh, last weekend as well? Yeah. Okay, cool. All right, next slide. That is all we have. All right. So let's bring the crew back together. I want to say thank you very much for the BHIS testers that showed up. I, I do find it interesting that it's 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 a lot of the new testers in Jordan. It, it's kind of funny, Jordan. It's a lot of the older testers are like, I, I've done that. I've done that. And this isn't to mean that these are the only ways that BHIS is bypassing endpoints. It's just this is what we basically threw in uh, a webcast. And the point that you need to take from all of this, folks, is your endpoint security product can and will be bypassed. Expect it. It is something that can happen. Don't look at this as like your end-all, be-all of, of your security. If your entire security architecture is around your endpoint security, you're hosed. So we need to have multiple overlapping fields of visibility. You need to have the network. You need to have you know event logs coming off your domain controller, looking at UEBA, and the endpoint all being used together because... Yes, any one of these things can be bypassed, but it's very difficult to bypass every single one of them. And let's not forget that the power plant attack, or the water plant attack down in Tampa, as much as we talk about these different bypass techniques and we get all excited about some cool things that are technical, let's not forget that I I think the article just came out just a couple hours ago where they had weak password policies at the water plant and they had really, really poor firewall controls. Doesn't matter how amazing your endpoint security is, if you're using passwords that are garbage to your Team Viewer account, you're probably gonna get hacked, and more importantly, you're gonna deserve to get hacked. So thank you so much, and remember, once again, things are only fragile till they break. Break everything, because only that way do things actually get stronger. Thank you so much, everybody, and we'll see you at our next BHIS webcast. Bye-bye. I am ending the webinar for all.
Or are you doing want to do post-show banter? Or? We can do post-show banter. I, I, I don't know. I'm kind of tired. I don't know about you guys. <laughs> but uh, that, was a, that was a good session. Have we tipped over enough cows? I think that – you know what? So many cows. I, I want to have – I just once, like, go on Twitter and say, should we do this again? And people are like, no, 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 we get it. We're done. We're done. And the festivals are like, we're done. But it's always right above – it's about 60% of the population is like, no, 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 we need to do this again. And there's still a lot of people that show up to this webcast are like, I didn't even know that stuff was possible. So I would love nothing more than this to not be a thing anymore. Yeah, we even have a playlist of just sacred cash cow tipping on YouTube where you can just go back and see it every year for the last five, six years. I did. I did. I, I did it just so I could like see what, what stuff has already been talked about. That's why I have mm. uh, like all of my stuff has already been talked about. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I, I'm surprised this hasn't like gotten us banned from YouTube. Oh. I, I mean, it, it's probably because we have a name like Don't sacred cash cow tipping. If we were like antivirus bypass techniques for the busy pen tester, um, that would probably don't say hack, don't say hack uh, and don't say attack. Those are the two that gets keywords. And also, like in the description or in the in the like title, yeah. Uh, but if you say educational in the title, it, it gets you bypass that. And so, another place that I help with is adding educational to all of our show titles. So the new one's going to be how to bypass YouTube's content filtering. <laughs> Educationally. <laughs> With right, much education. Uh, yeah, it's like, it's hey, like John, uh, the secret cash cow, it, it, it got flagged. Yeah. 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 I, we knew it. It was, <laughs> it was, it was just a right now. It was just a matter of time. Oh, we monetized our channel. Oh, we're cool now. Oh, <laughs> oh yeah, now it's fine. We'll have to be a. We'll have to start our own BHIS tube. Hmm. That's did, our. Did like someone, someone posted that. that. <laughs> someone posted that in Discord. That's yeah. that's going to be started in like two seconds. Like, yeah, we're not gonna... exactly. It's not going to yeah. happen. Hold on. Let me get it. Let me get it. tube dot com. The main squatting. Here we go. It's like, that it's like red really tube, bad. but for geeks. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I don't want that visual. I yeah, really don't want right. that visual. Oof, that was a good ending. No, yeah. we'll we'll host it up on Amazon because there's no way Amazon will ever shut anybody down. <laughs> so. Yeah, what do you have to do to get shut down on Amazon? I uh, have an idea. Uh, we're gonna. <laughs> <laughs> Aren't they like the number one destination for Cobalt Strike beacons? Oh, absolutely, yes. number one. Yeah, by far. In so, fact, I wouldn't put anything anywhere else. The Digital Ocean works really well too. No, but... Azure. Azure is my new favorite pick. Right? It's it's yeah. an up and comer. They really haven't caught on to oh, domain oh. fronting, <laughs> and they also they also are support. Four different CDN providers, so you can really have fun. They've been More fronting for Akamai for a friend. while, though. So, I mean, it's really cool. You can go buy Akamai service from Microsoft, but not Akamai. Right. Yeah, no, no. You have to call them. Like, I was like, oh, where do you, you know, sign up for this? They're like, no, call us for pricing. I'm like, okay, <laughs> okay, <laughs> okay. It's not happening. What do you guys? What do you guys do? Backdoor shells and hacking. That's All a right. service. Well, here you go. Yeah, <laughs> so, we're a game company. 
Um, by the way, don't point that at any of your friends or at yourself. Go on, you little scamper. <laughs> Ralph, I, I was surprised that you didn't bring up your EVR bypass that you're working on this or this last week, where it's like VPN in. Like, oh, I, yeah, I, no, that's <laughs> like, like that's the best EDR bypass ever, and you didn't mention it, and I was so sad. Like. <laughs> I, I already I, ran. I feel like it's so horrible to say that. Just be like, well, I just VPNed in and nobody detected it. It worked. Right? <laughs> I, I, I didn't. I already ranted enough at the beginning, but, you know, that was one of the things at SANS, at the forensics curriculum, whenever I left. I was talking about these are ways that we're actually bypassing and this is how we're executing. And you talk about VPNs and RDP and all these things. And, like, are you guys talking about that in your forensics classes to the forensics curriculum instructors? And they're like, yeah, no. Like, why? That's hard. <laughs> That's really hard. And I'm like, you still, have, you still have a lot of stuff on analyzing malware files on disk. That's not quite how we roll. Like, why did you do more memory now? Yeah, that's hard. That's hard. It's really I, I thought hard. it was going to Did you I ever had... end up joining it to the domain? I, I didn't. I didn't join it to the domain. But I, what I thought was funny is I actually got a shell on that host because of... The, the VPN um, obviously didn't have split tunnel, so I had to shell that host so that I could access it anywhere as it was on the VPN, so it was kind of fun. Alright, folks. Well, I'm going to get going. I'll talk to you all later. Bye. 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 I'm going to end the webinar. Thanks, everybody. Uh, if you ever need a pen test, you know where to find us. <laughs> and end the... Uh, uh, kill it with fire. Kill it with fire. Doesn't look killed. Are we still here? I think we're still, I'm still here. I'm still.